listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And on today's episode, we are going to be discussing Black Sabbath's 13th studio album, The Eternal Idol. Released towards the end of 1987, The Eternal Idol would usher in yet another new era for the band with the introduction of vocalist Tony Martin. Martin would join late in the recording process after taking over for current vocalist Ray Gillen. Less than a year earlier, Ray had saved the day when he stepped in to replace Glenn Hughes early in the Seventh Star Tour. But Ray's lack of studio experience and songwriting ability, as well as his lackadaisical attitude, would find him being replaced at the last moment by Tony Martin, who would rise to the challenge of having to record over all of Ray's vocal parts in just a few days. For the curious, a 2010 deluxe reissue of The Eternal Idol has a bonus disc which features the album in its original form with Ray Gillen on vocals. Who did it better? We'll let you be the judge. The album itself would have a long, difficult gestation process, even by Sabbath standards, with Jeff Glixman, Vix Coppersmith-Heaven, and Chris Tangorgides all having a hand at some point in the production. Finances and band member issues would also hamper the proceedings with seven-star holdover Dave Spitz leaving the bass chair for personal reasons to to be replaced by journeyman Bob Daisley. Bob, who had played bass with such notable groups as Rainbow and former Sabbath singer Ozzy's solo band. Eric Singer would still be on board for the recording of the drum parts, as would Jeff Nichols on keyboards. Touring for the album was rather brief and had both Joe Burt and even Dave Spitz on bass. Eric Singer would not tour with the band, but the drum spot would be taken by returning touring member Bev Bevan and Terry Chimes from The Clash on drums would also tour with the band during this period. Even the album cover would have its own difficulties. Two models hired to pose like the Auguste Rodin's sculpture, The Eternal Idol, would have to make a trip to the hospital after becoming ill from the toxicity of the bronze paint used to replicate the sculpture. But to the the ears of many fans, the result was an album that felt like a return to form for Black Sabbath, and the arrival of Tony Martin would bring some much-needed stability in the lead vocalist position for the band in the coming years. For the curious and the collectors out there, search out the songs Some Kind of Woman, which appeared as the B-side to The Shining, as well as an early version of the Headless Cross song Black Moon, which was the B-side to the Eternal Idol single. All right, Darren, we've arrived at the Tony Martin years. What are your memories of the Eternal Idol? Not much. Um, I did see the album in a record store, but I kind of passed it over because I thought it was a compilation. Um, I hadn't heard anything about the release of the album. I I wasn't expecting a new Black Sabbath album. Um, It seemed like it was curiously on the down low, actually. Um, It wasn't until I... After I bought Headless Cross that I went back and got Eternal Idol. And I thought that was pretty cool because at the time I, I thought Headless Cross was okay. Um, you know, and when we get into our <laughs> Headless Cross uh, discussion, we'll, we'll get more into that. But I liked it enough. And, um, and so 
getting Eternal Idol after Headless Cross was sort of like a continuation, and and both records sort of sound the same. So uh, I, I have a tendency to group them together in a way, although I guess I prefer this more than Headless Cross. I think there's more content on the Eternal Idol. Um, I like the production, although I like the production better than Headless Cross, although the production on the Eternal Idol leaves a lot to be desired for, in my opinion. Um, and it could be because of the way that it had involved two basically different production teams. Um, the album seemed to be kind of disjointed, but it was a little more cohesive than the one that preceded it, the seventh star. But again, we still didn't really have a band. Um, we had members coming and going. There was some instability in the lineup. Um, there was some overall instability within Black Sabbath or at the, the institution that was Black Sabbath. I mean, they're having Black Sabbath was having a problem with uh, paying the studio bills, and sometimes their the equipment was was held hostage until they could pay the bills. So there was a there's a lack of funds in, involved with this. And I, I guess you could probably safely consider this the uh, this era as the low point in Black Sabbath. I think the musical climate at the time probably had a lot to do with that too. But more than anything else, I think it was just the, the lack of a stable lineup. Uh, but to get back on point, so my first experience with this, once I heard it, was uh, I liked it. Um, it was very different than anything that preceded it. Um, I think the songs overall are good. Uh, I liked Tony Martin's voice when I, when I first heard it, but I thought it sounded a little AOR and I, I still kind of do. I don't think that, the, I think one of the things about Black Sabbath that always gave it a lot of appeal to me was the workmanlike aspect of it. And I think that was pretty much diminished the advent of the Tony Martin era, things got pretty polished. Um, Iomi's riffs started to kind of get a little bit homogenized, uh, a little antiseptic uh, moving forward. But here on this album, and we'll go track to track like we normally do, there are quite a few highlights in the riff department on this album. Um, but overall, I mean, I guess uh, I like it. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't crack my top 10, but uh, it's pretty decent. You know, as we go from, from song to song again, we'll go in, I'll go into the uh, things I like about it and the things I'm not really that crazy about. But uh, that's pretty much where I am with it. I've always loved this album. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I got it when it came out. I know that I got it through a record club and I remember them advertising it as the new Black Sabbath album. Coming off of Seventh Star, and we, of course, discussed Seventh Star already, uh, I was disappointed in Seventh Star. It didn't feel like a Black Sabbath album. Uh, we all know now that it was never intended to be a Black Sabbath solo album. A Black Sabbath album it was intended to be a Tony Iommi solo album. But honestly, at the time, I didn't know that. And it was called Black Sabbath. So for all intents and purposes, it was Black Sabbath. And I was disappointed in it. It didn't feel like a Black Sabbath album. It wasn't dark enough. It wasn't heavy enough for me. 
And when I got the Eternal Idol, I remember right away seeing the album cover and really liking the album cover. I've always been a sucker for statues, even though this isn't a statue. It's two people posing like a statue, but it looks like a statue. And uh, I just, I like the cover. Uh, and as soon as I put it on, I I liked it. I liked Tony Martin's voice. I still like Tony Martin's voice. For me, uh, Tony Martin... Glenn Hughes is an amazing vocalist. He just never felt like the right vocalist for me in Black Sabbath. He didn't have that sort of dark, eerie, for lack of a better word, metal quality to his voice. Glenn Hughes is a amazing blues rock singer, but he just never worked in Sabbath for me. Tony Martin did from the first time I heard him. He, he immediately made me think of a little bit of Dio. He's got a little bit of that. Uh, he's got a little bit of that weight to his voice, power to his voice, yet he has a huge range. Uh, the production on th the album, I really liked. It felt darker compared to Seven Star, which felt too bright to me. Uh, my only complaint with this album and the only thing that probably hasn't aged particularly well from the production for me is the snare drum sound. It sounds very 80s processed. I, I, I don't know quite what the right word for it would be triggered or something. I, I have no idea. Sampled, triggered. There's something going on with the snare that did, makes it very undynamic for me and it's a little bit loud in the mix. But I love Iomi's guitar sound. Uh, Bob Daisley joins in on bass. I'm a huge Bob Daisley fan, even though uh, his bass is a little bit lost in the mix at times. Uh, but for me, it was all about Tony Martin, and I felt like I was back in with Black Sabbath. Seventh Star was the first time that I went, uh-oh, you know, I'm not totally into this. Everything related to Black Sabbath that I had heard before the seventh star, I just absolutely adored and loved and couldn't stop listening to. Seventh star was a disappointment. Throw on top of it, like you mentioned already, the carousel of rotating band members. And I was starting to feel, uh, I was I was starting to feel uh, cheated by all of this. You know, we had gone, Ronnie leaves, uh, Ian Gillen comes in, Ian leaves, uh, Glenn Hughes comes in, Glenn Hughes leaves, Ray Gillen comes in, now Tony Martin comes in. It, it really felt like uh, it was it was hard to get behind the band because of the constant rotating members. And I really felt that with Seven Star, but I can't remember if I was even aware. I, I know I was aware that Glenn Hughes wasn't in the band. I, I don't think that I had any idea any idea before I got the eternal idol who, who was in the band? Maybe I did. I don't remember, but I just remember kind of feeling like it was a, it felt like a new start for me with the band. And I, I really felt like I felt good about it and I felt like I could get behind it. And I kind of was hoping and that, okay, this, this lineup may work out or at least Tony Martin may hang around here. He, he had everything that I wanted. He had the, the powerful range, uh, yet he had that tone to his voice that fit Black Sabbath for me. The songs on the album, there's, I mean, we're going to get into it in our song by song, 
but uh there was enough heavy stuff here on this album there was enough big riffs uh it's the last i'll say this too it's the last black sabbath album and i and of course this is tony martin's first album but i don't really feel like this is the proper beginning of the tony martin era that doesn't really start for me till the headless cross and that's because Tony comes in very, very late in the process. All the music's been written. All the melody lines have been written. Uh, he wouldn't be involved in the songwriting till Headless Cross. So for me, I, I always kind of, you mentioned earlier about lumping albums together. This feels like the last Black Sabbath album that I can in any way make a connection to an earlier era. Like I, I feel like there's songs on here that maybe riffs that maybe Iomi had from back when Dio was in the band. Uh, I can sort of make some connections with the eternal idol back to the Ronnie era. It's a little hard to, to connect it back to the Ozzy era, maybe moments here and there. Uh, but it's the last golden uh, 10 out of 10 Black Sabbath album for me. I've always been a fan of this record, loved it. It drew me back into the band, but it kind of felt like the, uh, which is weird because it's Tony Martin's first record, but it felt like the end of an era. And maybe part of it too was it's their last album with Warner Brothers. And even though there was all kinds of financial issues with this, they would move on to irs which you know i guess would be considered a a smaller label uh but it's just it 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 felt like uh it's the 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 last black sabbath album that i can tie to anything from the past the headless cross i i guess that's not fair dehumanizer of course you can tie that back to the to the do era but headless cross tear forbidden cross purposes feel like a really a much different band whereas th this feels like there's still some connections to at least the Dio era of the band for me. So always love this album. Uh, I return to it often. Uh, I just think that there's fantastic singing. There's uh, fantastic vocals on it. Uh, I love it. Cool. Um, how did you find out that the album was available? It was in the uh, the record club. I used to get these. I don't know if you remember the record clubs. You used to get these like, I don't know if they were like biweekly or monthly, like newsletters. I do remember those. I never I never got any of those things. Yeah. I, and they used to always have like features, you know, and they and I just I remember it being like new Black Sabbath album. And it they had the picture of the album cover and because sometimes they didn't have the picture of the covers. Yeah. And so there was like a little quarter page or half page uh, feature on it. And I can distinctly remember it to, you know, the record clubs, they used to show up in these uh, brown boxes. And I can distinctly remember I was outside, I don't know, raking leaves or something like that. And the mailman, I saw that brown box land in my uh, mailbox and ran up and I was like, eternal. I can picture myself standing there in my yard, you know, opening up the box and everything. So yeah, I was, I was able to, uh, yeah, get it early or at least when it, when it, I think when it first came out. Wow. Cool. Um, yeah, I was a big, uh, rock magazine kid. Um, and I used to frequent record stores and I did not see this album in the record stores, nor did I see any advertisements in any of the U.S. magazines. The only thing I remember seeing, and I may have missed an issue or two, I, I remember seeing 
some Black Sabbath coverage in Kerrang! at that time, but it was with Ray Gillen at that particular point in time. I, I don't remember. I know it, I only was on the cover, um, but I didn't see anything, or at least I don't recall reading anything that said anything specifically about an album coming out called The Eternal Idol. Now, maybe it just flew under my radar. I don't know. But like I said, I it didn't even seem like it was supported by the record label. And I, it, it probably I a, wasn't I have a feeling. It probably yeah. wasn't because they moved on to IRS pretty quickly after that. Cause this, this came out. What did you say? It was December 87. Yeah, it was actually, it was released at two different, uh, it was released in November of 87 in the UK and December of 87 in the U S. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty cool that you were so enthusiastic about it. Um, for me, I still kind of was getting a seven star vibe from it. I, and I, I think that that's pretty cool. I, I admire the fact that you were able to draw in previous, a previous Sabbath connection. I was not able to make that. I could identify, and like I said, there's some pretty cool riffs and, and we'll go through those. Um, but there was a kind of a disconnect with this album and anything previous to that. So, but I had pretty much resigned myself, I guess in around the time of 1983, that the days of, of Ozzy and Dio were, were pretty much long gone. Um, and so here we are. And, and I, when you refer to this album as the band, again, it's like, there really isn't. There's, I mean, there really isn't because Bob Daisley wasn't a member of the band. Bob Daisley was yeah. in the Hired Gun. He was, he was in Gary Moore's band, and returned to Gary Moore's band. And then Eric Wing, Eric Singer tracked the drums, but then he went with Daisley, yeah, joined Gary Moore. Which, of course, I didn't know, but I didn't really see anything about a band at all. I knew Geezer wasn't there, and I knew Bill Ward wasn't there. So the only person that was constant in this lineup was was Tony Iommi and it really wasn't that much different from seven star, except that we had a different singer and the singer sounded close enough, sort of not as good, but kind of in that same wheelhouse as a, as a Glenn Hughes, a big rock voice, uh, a little on the generic side. He hadn't really come into his own. And a lot of that, I guess is probably because in retrospect, now that we know he was assigned the task of just basically singing everything the way that, Ray Gillen sang it. And yeah. Ray Gillen was, I thought, a tremendous singer. I thought he really he really came into his own in, in Jakey Lee's band, Badlands. But again, a tremendous singer, not the right fit for Black Sabbath. So when Tony Martin came in and he just basically mimicked what Ray Gillen had done, um, you know, we had this, this sort of like, it wasn't a Dio sound. It certainly wasn't an Ozzy sound. Like I said, I, I kind of missed the workman-like quality of a, of a Black Sabbath album and a Black Sabbath band. It seemed like it was just sort of put together in a studio, and it, it sort of was. I mean, you know, Eric Singer, you, you mentioned the drums having like that, uh, that gated sound, the snare drum. Yeah, and it's a little distracting at times. But overall, yeah. I mean, Eric Singer is not – he's a good – hired gun he's a good studio guy he doesn't come into a band and really have a lot of personality he serves the songs he plays pretty minimalistic occasionally you might hear 
a, a, a fill that that is like, wow, that that's really cool. But overall, his playing is sort of like it, it's it's unobtrusive, I guess, for lack of a better word. It it's there. It it fills out the song. It it, it serves the purpose. And his playing on on this album is like that. It's like you don't have a Bill Ward here, you know. Um, you don't have a Vinnie Apice here. You, yeah. you don't have a drummer that is really like adding a personality, adding to a this personality, sound. or adding yeah. anything to the sound other than to just play the songs. And and you also mentioned that you know Bob Daisley is on this, but you can barely hear his bass. Yeah, it gets really lost. It's, sometimes it it jumps out, but this is an interesting little tidbit. And I, I, it, uh, I wasn't sure if my memory was was correct on this, but after uh, looking it up on Wikipedia, it says that Dave Spitz was listed on the album as playing bass, which of course was incorrect. Uh, but I guess it was erroneously listed on the album as Dave Spitz. So I'm guessing that probably for years I was walking around thinking it was it was Dave Spitz and Eric Singer held, you know, they were on Seven Star. So you were mentioning about, you know, the band thing. And it I probably in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, you know, it's still the same rhythm section from the set from uh, Seven Star uh but yeah just uh again a this sort of confusing era of <laughs> black sabbath where yeah, nobody but, inclu nobody including the band could even keep track of uh of no and, and, that, and that sort of diminishes it now uh, dave spitz gets credit but so does bob daisley on the back of the album bev bevan gets a percussion credit actually his credit is before Eric Singer, but Eric Singer actually plays drums on the album. Bev Bevan hits a couple cymbals in the instrumental Scarlet Pimpernel. But um, yeah, so I mean, we've got a whole cast of, we've, we've got a cast here. We've got a cast of characters. We don't really have a band. We have a, we have a team. Yeah, what's interesting about the, the Tony Martin and the Ray Gillen situation, uh, yeah, I, I I I agree with you. Ray Gillen is an amazing vocalist. I don't think he was the right fit for Black Sabbath for the same reason that I didn't really care for Glenn Hughes and Black Sabbath. Glenn Hughes, an amazing singer, but he just didn't have the the tone that I wanted from a singer in Black Sabbath. But if you read the the common story, is is you you hear different variations on this that. Ray Gillen uh, wasn't a songwriter. He wasn't a lyric writer, or I've also read a bunch of times that his pronunciation or something. The vowel singer. Yeah, none of, of this. Vibrato. He had a, and that's one of the things that, that Tony Martin supposedly um, brought to the table was that he, he did take, you know, the, the Gillen um, vocal template, but he provided more definition, more articulation in the lyrics. And when you listen to the Ray Gillen thing, you know, you'll, you'll hear that he, I mean, he's like howling <laughs> and yeah. he's a great howling singer. But, but what's interesting about this, this whole thing about Ray Gillen, not being a songwriter, not writing lyrics. Well, when Tony Martin comes into the band, all the lyrics and all the melody, if, if he was such a bad songwriter, you think they would have brought Martin in and said, Hey, you know, this guy can't write melody lines. You got to sort of write some of these melody lines or you know, Bob Daisley I, comes in. And I mean, the lyrics, what's the issue with the lyrics? Uh, Ozzy Geezer wrote a, a 
a big chunk of the early Sabbath lyrics. So what difference does it make if somebody else is writing lyrics? Bob writes some of the lyrics. Supposedly Jeff Nichols was even involved in various aspects of the songwriting, not really getting as much credit as he should. But it, I, I think my 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 feeling on it is, is that, uh, and from what I've read, that it was probably more to do with uh, Ray Gillen's attitude and supposedly he was more partying and stuff like that and uh you know not not as focused on the studio as as they wanted him to be at least i've read an early interview with tony yeah. martin and that's that's the reason he says because look if if it was such an issue with the songwriting and with the lyrics then why would they have tony martin come in and sing tell him specifically to sing exactly what ray well, gillen did and what well i i think because in in lieu of the fact that Ray Gillen was less than what they had hoped for. They had Bob Daisley come in and, and do the, actually he didn't do all the melodies from what I understand. It was like Ray Gillen did have some melodies, but, but Bob Daisley. So when they're, when they're trying to put this album together and they've got a singer and the singer will traditionally write their own lyrics and with the lyrics, usually the melodies. But when they figured out that Ray Gillen wasn't that kind of guy, he was more like a, a Graham Bonnet sort of a, Sort of a of a guy, um, great singer, Martin, but just doesn't. As yeah. Martin Popoff uh, wrote in his book, I forget which which one of the Sabbath books it was, but he drew the comparison between Ray Gillen and Graham Bonnet as great singers, but they're not the kind of guys. They're not they're not writers. They're not songwriters. But was that known when they when they recruited Ray Gillen? Uh, probably not, because they they. You know, they had to make provisions for the fact that, that he wasn't. And then the provision was that they got asked Bob Daisley to come in. And Bob Daisley obviously not only writes lyrics, he writes songs, writes yeah. melodies, you know. So um and I, I the impression I get is that he worked with with Ray, who was a the singer at the time, to get things squared away and with the writing to to get the lyrics done, to get the melodies done so that Ray can can sing in the studio which he did um but there's also a thing about that ray wasn't getting paid and this is this is like i read this on wikipedia this afternoon that ray wasn't getting any money from the management so that was one of the things and, and it really i guess like it depends on who you talk to or, or what the source is did did, was ray fired or did, did did he leave you know maybe he laughed and then after he left because it wasn't because there, there wasn't a lot of money in the organization at this point, you know, I mean, yeah. if he was holding the, the equipment hostage until they pay the next bill. Then obviously it's, it's not, it's not doing really well. And there's probably not enough money to get to pay everybody, which could have been one of the reasons why Eric Singer flew the coop too. Uh, Bob Daisley was asked to join the band. He, he didn't want to probably thought it was more of a lucrative gig to, to stay with Gary Moore, but make a little bit of money. And I, I I'm assuming he was paid, but, who knows? Maybe, maybe uh, at this point, Bob Daisley didn't really care if he got paid by anybody anymore because he'd been drugged through the mud so badly with Ozzy. <laughs> you know, yeah. Maybe he was just doing it for his resume, but I'm sure, I'm sure he got paid. Uh, but, but he, he was out. You know, he, um, he didn't stay in there for the long haul. Um, and and Ray Gillen, maybe his thing was that you know this didn't seem like what what it was all cracked up to be he wasn't making any money and yeah i mean he was a partier i mean obviously he his lifestyle choices um contributed to his de untimely demise but um 
such as it is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the work that, didn't mean to get back on track here, I think that the work that was done with Bob Daisley to compensate for the lack of ability that Ray had as far as the writing was what took them to the situation or took them to the point where now the singer that they had hired because Tony Martin was a writer. He was a songwriter. He yeah. could also play. If he yeah. had an idea, he could sit there. He played instruments. He played guitar. He played bass. Um, so he could actually, if he had an idea, he could actually show the other members of the band what he was talking about. Um, and so that was more or less, I think, I think Tony Morton was more or less an investment in the future. And Ray was sort of holdover from the lineup that really never was other than in a live situation. So with the work that was done with, with Bob Daisley and, and the melodies and the singing that, that Ray did, I think that they ultimately liked it, obviously, because it was a Chris Sangarides, is that how you say it? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure yet. Yeah. Tangaritas. Kind of coached um, Tony to get through that. And he does, a, he does a great job. But, you know, it's like when you, when you hear that 10th anniversary, is a 10th anniversary thing? When you hear the, the original Ray Gillen song, some of them, man, it's just like, I prefer, like, you can go back and forth. Some songs I prefer the way Tony Martin sings and other songs I prefer by a large margin the way that ray gillen sings and probably it's because it were it was ray gillen's melodies it was ray gillen belting yeah. it out in the way that he was comfortable as opposed to tony martin copying something that maybe didn't feel quite as natural but he, he does a great job and um but when you listen to the two things you have to give tony martin credit for for replicating the Ray Gillen vocals so so well, almost to the T in some in some cases. Yeah, but you're right. Even... He doesn't. But but Tony Martin doesn't come into his own until the following out, and that's when I can sort of hear everything else aside. When I'm when I'm when I'm focused on Tony Martin, Headless Cross. My takeaway from Headless Cross was that it was a better Tony Martin. Really, in some ways, it was the first Tony Martin album. Can you mention that? That this maybe wasn't the best showcase of the best starting point for tony martin because he was really just following in the footsteps of his predecessor short-lived predecessor but predecessor nonetheless so and with uh headless cross cozy powell comes into the band and cozy powell is a drummer who does have personality so like you said with the constant rotation of members here it's uh you know really it's 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 iomi and it's it's Tony Martin and you don't have the bass and the drums don't quite have jump out at you maybe the way they would have on a classic, uh, on a classic black Sabbath album. But, uh, but for me, it I'm not quite sure why I'm not sure if maybe these riffs were some of these riffs were holdovers from earlier in the eighties or something. I'm just uh, this, this album still feels to me, it feels more like a Black Sabbath album than than Seven Star did. Yeah, and, I can see that. And it's got enough of the heaviness, and uh, it's it's a little hard for me to judge the Ray Gillen version of the record because it's it's unmixed. It's it's not it's not a finish like the guitars are very. Uh, it, it sounds like a demo, which is you know basically what it is. They didn't finish 
finished mixing it with with Ray Gillen. So sometimes it's a little bit hard to tell. I'm sure they would have added some extra vocal harmonies and things like that and particular spots that would have made the songs uh, feel a little different. But uh, yeah, it's an album that that is just aged uh it's aged well for me and i like to to return to it i return to it quite often actually i think that iomi has a lot i like iomi's guitar tone on this i think he has a lot of nice solos uh i think there's a lot of heavy sabbathy type of riffs uh so i think, I think the production the choice of pro producer producers probably wasn't the best um i think both these guys are pretty busy in the 80s and they had a lot of things going on and i think it kind of sounds the eternal idol sort of sounds a little bit cookie cutterish. i mean it, it, in some ways this is you, you've heard the album blue murder with uh yeah carmine apiece and john sykes and Tucker. yeah it does have that kind of late 80s like it, it, it's very similar to that and i think at one point tony martin even was maybe he involved in uh, blue murder in some way or he and there's some songs where john sykes sounds very similar to tony martin so there's kind of like this gray area of really this contemporary vibe that that kind of permeates most of eternal idol it's a very contemporary sounding record it doesn't it, you know martin birch where when we talked about this at length but his production he really extracted a really great atmosphere um that served the material really well and made an overall package that was just so so awesome um heaven and hell was a little bit sort of when I look back on it, it seemed like, well, maybe that was just Martin Birch kind of getting his head wrapped around what he could do with this type of music. And then when he got into mob rules, it just, man, it just landed in the perfect place. It just really brought in this really heavy, dark atmosphere. And without that production quality, I don't think it, the album would be um, artistically that, that successful, but, but it is. And a lot of it is due to the production. Likewise, with this, I think the production, I think the songs overall, there's a couple couple that I'm not crazy about, but overall, I like every song on this album. There isn't a song that I dislike, but I think with a production that maybe was a little bit more personal to the band, maybe a little bit more um, keyed into the material, the vibe of the songs, it might have made the album more successful. But at the out overall for me for me anyway the, the production seems to just kind of be there it's like here's the albums they're recorded you can hear them they're very audible um the mix is questionable but not bad but there's not a lot to be said for the production i don't think anybody can listen to this album and say the production is just phenomenal <laughs> because it, it's just there i mean it's not bad it's not great it's a typical 80s production um and in some ways, I think that kind of hinders what would otherwise be a better album because the the songs are songs are good. Yeah, and this is this is the point now with Black Sabbath. And when when you're talking to fans of the band, a lot of it depends on when you discovered Black Sabbath. But and this happens to a lot of bands when bands that have been around a long time and bands that replace members that. Uh, change their sound slightly 
the band at this point, I can understand why someone who grew up on the Ozzy era could say, I just can't get into this because it is very far removed from the Ozzy era. We, uh, Darren and I do a, uh, thing on my YouTube channel called Sabbath Sunday. And we were discussing, uh, deck chemistry that was with the original band, the sound of Bill Ward and, and geezer Butler and the swing and the jazz and the blues and everything. I mean, there's, you don't hear that really at all here. And, and this is a dilemma that a lot of bands face. W- what do you do if, if you, if they had, if Tony Iommi had decided to call the band the Eternal Idol Band or the Headless Cross Band or something, people may have taken it more on its, on its own merits and said, okay, well, this obviously isn't Black Sabbath. They're calling it something else. And they would be able to accept it for what it is. But whenever you're a band with this much of a legacy, it's unavoidable that people are going to compare it to what came before it. And Seven Star was enough of a stretch away, at least it was some of the blues and jazzy feel uh, and Iomi's playing more so the blues uh, feel and Glenn Hughes maybe kind of tied it into the seventies a little bit as he has a guy from the seventies, Ian Gillen, the same thing, geezer Butler and Bill Ward were there for born again. Uh, But this is really getting far away from the black Sabbath of master of reality and and everything. And, and, and I can understand why some people can't get into it. And and even myself personally, I tend to go in phases where I'm in a Tony Martin phase where that's like, all I'm listening to Uh because the only thing here remaining is Tony Iommi. He's the only planet. That's a very big thread to tie you to the original band, but he's the only, only thing left here at this point. And this really is becoming a very different animal and it would keep moving away i mean even more so with headless cross and 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 the albums moving forward here with with tony martin so it's it's understandable to me when i hear people that just can't embrace this era of the band at all as much as i i want to say hey there's a lot of great stuff here you should really check this out you really have to sort of change your mind it's like peter gabriel era genesis and phil collins you know i can't dance era genesis it's so different from the peter gabriel era nobody listens to that (laughs) what you say to yourself is this the same band and there's a lot of bands that have been around a long time where you know you kind of deep purple deep purple's been around forever and there's their band members have changed and come and gone and a lot of these classic bands and it does sort of raise the question of is this even the same band at this point and would they have been better served if if i only had just called it something else and well, that's a that's a good point um and and that that may be the case i think that probably would have worked for seven star i think that if that was if that was considered or that was called marketed promoted as a Tony Iommi solo album, I think it would have gotten a pass. I think that, um, and it would have served the legacy of black Sabbath a little bit better because then you could say, well, okay, this is what Tony Mark or Tony Iommi sounds like when he's out of the black the, Sabbath yeah. mindset, this yeah. is him just branching out and doing something uniquely his own when he gets back into black sabbath though 
you know, you're going to hear stuff like what we heard on Mob Rules or even Born Again or maybe maybe something from the Aussie era. The thing about it is, um, and there's nothing wrong with this, but the Tony Martin era could have been another chance for for Tony Iommi to rebuild Black Sabbath. But how many times can you do that within a band's career and expect it to be expect the fans to be receptive to it and it, and expect to, to not be some confusion. Uh, certainly, you can't really compare the Dio era of Black Sabbath to the Ozzy era. They're, they're two separate things. Um, the timing was was fortunate because where where things ended up in '78, it had pretty much petered out. So they really needed they really needed a shot in the arm. And Dio was there, and he very assertive. He was assertive front man he was assertive in the live situation but he was also assertive in the studio and his presence was huge so they were able to reinvent themselves in this new era of the 80s and it was successful for the most part um though short-lived they and you probably could say that well let's do that again let's let's get a new singer he's not like he doesn't sound like dio he doesn't sound like ozzy he's he is who he is, and let's let's build a band around this new sound that we have, because it is a new sound. It's a new singer, and a singer is a large part of the identity of a band. Um, and Tony Tony Martin has a great voice, and it, it, it's it's something that could have been built on, and it's something that that was built on. But when you back to your point about people have a hard time accepting it. Yeah, because I don't think that, I think it was sort of unceremoniously just sort of, there it is, here it is, we have a new singer. Um, and he's not really, he's, he's not really assertive enough to take the band, take the bull by the horns and, and, take, and take Black Sabbath into the late, into the 90s, the way that Dio did. He's he's pretty polite he's he's and and, I, and that it goes both ways to, to in, in in some ways it goes to his credit because he's respectful of the legacy and you know he he's he's a fan and and he he's he's like i said he's respectful of the legacy but he doesn't really say okay this is my band now okay. i'm the singer i'm the guy who's going to take this into the 90s I'm going to take the bull by the horns in, in such the same way that, that Ronnie James Dio did. Tony Martin, he, he does a great job, but he's not enough to start a new era of the band. And I think that's really what needed to happen. There is a new era of the band and this is it, but it's pretty lackluster in comparison to the two previous eras, the Dio, when you, you can call it an era because at least there was two studio albums to support it. And of course the Ozzy era. Um, even just the one album that 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 Gillen did. I mean, Gillen came in and he's he's Ian Gillen. I mean, he he wasn't taking a backseat to anything else to Iommi's riffs or to to Geezer or to Bill. I mean, he came in full force as Ian Gillen. He's screaming, he's wailing, and you know he's not trying to sound like Dio. You know he wasn't trying to sound like Ozzy. He was doing yeah. his own thing with confidence. And I think and I wish there had been more of that for this era of the band but as things move along gradually that starts to build up and i think 
in retrospect, when you're looking over the entire Tony Martin era, I think in the end, it, it worked out okay. It just, he just didn't have a strong enough presence to really be a remarkable, I think he was outclassed by the legacy of the band. And I think he was outclassed by the musicians that he was in the band with. So Tony Iommi, number one. Um, and then, of course, Geezer comes in at, at, at a point, too. But uh, uh, in, you know, some, I mean, in, in some ways, if, if I were to take a different view on that, maybe what Black Sabbath did wrong when after, after Ronnie leaves, they get Ian, Ian Gillen in the band. Did anybody really think Ian Gillen was going to hang around for eight to ten albums? Uh, Why not? He said, they, he, was. <laughs> he said he was. He said, well, I think that maybe they would have been better served. And I think that they were always look, looking for someone like a big name person. They got Ian Gillen in the band. They got Glenn Hughes in the band. You can read stories about David Coverdale's name got bounced around at various times, even throughout Robert Plant's name. You know, they, they were always looking for these really big singers who had I, I, their own identities. Like you mentioned, Ian Gillen, you know, Ian Gillen walks in and he's very much has his own thing and it worked. I mean, I'm glad that we have born again, but if the band had the, the advantage to someone like Tony Martin is that he was a relatively unknown mm -hmm. singer. And mm -hmm. maybe that could have been the way if they had, Tony Martin had come in earlier in the band and they could have built sort of this new thing around him. But again, we, you know, I say this over and over that there's just so many lineup changes and it's like watching your favorite sitcom where every, every season, new season, the main characters are somebody different. And eventually yeah. you just sort of you lose interest, you lose interest and it's hard to get invested in it because you're just kind of feeling like, and, and we sit here in the podcast and we, you know, the introduction of the show, we talk about the people who are involved and man, if we, we could have a whole podcast here, just talking about all the guys that were in the band for five seconds, you know, for a cup of coffee that mm -hmm. they got oh, in yeah. for one photo shoot. I mean, it's mind boggling. And especially, I do. Yeah. Especially in this era, because I mean, it, you know, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get into it when we go track by track, I think we're probably going to stay focused on the actual content of the album. But when, when Sabbath went on tour for this, and it, like you said, it was a short lived tour. Um, they had, they had two different drugs. Two different drummers they had bev yeah. bevan up until they they played in south africa and he'd like they were going to do that yeah. uh while there he was didn't want to do with didn't that, want anything right? to do with that so they had terry chimes it was, <laughs> was a solid drummer but i mean terry chimes you know i mean where, i know it's so far where did he come from, from? um uh, but it, you know and, and then so bass players you had dave spitz came back after the yeah. album was recorded Joe Burt uh, was in there for five Joe Burt was in there for a little bit, yeah. Right, uh, and they even had, and here's another little trivia thing for you, in the video for the song, The Shining, they didn't have a, they were in yeah. between bass players and yeah. they literally grabbed some guy who I think was working in the film studio because he looked like a rocker and he knew Walking how to hold a guitar. Nobody even knows his name, but the guy's like, and that just like, sort of typical, to, you know, just, just sort of sums up this I know. Black hey, Sabbath. Thing. You look pretty cool. Come yeah. over here. Get in the You're video. in the band. For and that's what, yeah. And that's what, exactly what it was. Um, 
he, he looked cool and yeah, they, they didn't have a bass player at that particular point in time. So they, they picked, pulled this guy in from off the street and in the video he was. I mean, and that's how little regard there was for actually trying to, to maintain a lineup or a band, the identity of a band. When you're at the point where you will walk outside and pull a guy off the street and say, hey, hey you, you're, you're in Black Sabbath now. You're in a video. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, so that that whole the whole idea, the whole concept of, of a band was just completely out the window. You had, yeah, Jeff Nichols, and you had Tony Iommi, and you had the new kid, Tony Martin, and that, and that's pretty much what you had. Um, and I guess it, you know, it, it, it depends on where you land too in this debate. For some people, Tony Iommi is Black Sabbath, so anything that Tony Iommi does. It, it 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 gives it that credibility. It's it it is Black Sabbath because Tony Iommi is Black Sabbath. He's such an important. I don't know. I, don't, I, don't know. I, I used to say that, and then I I, I recently I I've kind of rethought that. I don't think that it's all Tony Iommi. I think he's a, been a strong and an important part of that of that formula. But I mean, could you call the the DEP sessions? Is that what it is? The the thing that he does. Yeah. Would you would you consider that Black Sabbath? I don't I don't know. I, I mean I agree with you. Black Sabbath playing, is is more the sum of the the parts. Yeah, you know, I mean he's he, playing riffs that he could probably otherwise would put could have been on Seven or, Star. It sounds or, like or, or well, even there's even stuff that was recorded after that yeah. that might have found its way into you know anything else. And might the, the point is that those riffs that were relegated to that project that he had with glenn hughes could have otherwise and probably would have otherwise been in his arsenal of riffs to pull out for black sabbath songs yeah you know so you could say well tony iomi's black sabbath anything he does is going to sound like black sabbath well that's not necessarily true you, you know there, there, there's a certain vibe to this point there's a certain vibe that we can expect we have expected to hear up to this point with anything that's considered Black Sabbath, there's a dark vibe, there's a heavy vibe, there's a, you know, there, there's there's a certain way that the songs are structured, um, kind of loose, kind of tight, give and take, push and pull. There's 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 an identity to Black Sabbath that that goes just beyond Tony Iommi's riffs. But yeah, I mean, I was in that thing. I used to say, oh well, you know, Tony Iommi's Black Sabbath. If Tony, you know, Tony Iommi can do whatever he wants. Because he's Black Sabbath. Well, I kind of reconsidered that, you know, maybe in the last couple of years. I, I don't necessarily. I think that there's. It takes more than that to make Black Sabbath make a Black Sabbath album. I think there has to be, and and it could be with members that hadn't ever been in Black Sabbath before. But I think there has to be something that does sort of harken back to earlier eras, earlier albums, and bring that into the present tense. And, and, and I think there is a bit of that in, in Eternal Idol with, with the riffs. I, I think you're right. There are some, some things, there's one song in particular, and when we get to it, I'll, I'll tell you what it is, that could have been from the Ozzy era. Uh, there's a few that could be from the, from the Dio era. And there's, there's some, some newish vibes that I yeah. am laying down. It, so. it, in some ways, and I never really thought of this till right now, if their recording contract with Warner Brothers had ended with seventh star and they could have taken more time found a new record label 
started a new band that had more chemistry, like if Cozy Pal had come into the band earlier and need that whole, the whole Headless Cross band, which they, they really, with Headless Cross, I really think that they wanted to do this. They wanted to get a band identity back into the band. And if in some ways, if maybe Seven Star was that last Warner Brothers record and they could have had that time to sit back, find a new label, find a new band, start a new phase but it just comes at a very strange juncture they owe this album the warner brothers you mentioned earlier about you not really seeing it in magazines doesn't surprise me it's the last album on a band's contract and when a band's stock has been dropping like it did for sabbath i'm sure they didn't put put a lot of muscle behind it when it came to promoting it and you know typical black sabbath just nothing really quite quite lines up and they doing whatever they need to do to just sort of keep this thing moving. But it's a shame because I think that some people can't embrace the Tony Martin era because of the name Black Sabbath. And I, I, as much as I understand that, I, 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 I sometimes wish and I tell people like, oh man, but there's just, there's a lot of good stuff here. There's a lot of hidden gems here. And, and for those people, I usually say, the Eternal Idol might be the album that you you can embrace from the Tony Martin era because man, by the time we get to Tear and Cross Purposes, we're like I've mentioned a few times already. It's it's really hard to draw a line back to the Dio or the Ozzy era from from those albums. But at least here, it feels like you know maybe somebody who's only a fan of came in during the Dio era and only likes the Dio and the Ozzy era. I think there's things for them to like here. It's just, again, it's a shame. It didn't get promoted the right way. As soon as the album was done, basically it was just Iomi and Tony Martin. And we've had a rather long uh, amount of time between this and seven, seven star came out in 86. This came out at the end of 87, almost the beginning of 88. You know, you're talking two years doesn't sound like a lot, but back then that, that was a long time and you're getting long stretches uh, Seventh Star and Born Again was 83. Seventh Star was 86. So you're getting these two to three years between albums, millions of different people coming in through the doors. And it just sort of diluted the Black Sabbath uh, brand name. And it would really take them. And when we get into the Headless Cross, I mean, that was a conscious thing. Cozy Pal and Iomi realized like, man, we really have to start rebuilding the brand, the name, yeah, that is, and you know, it is Black Sabbath, and a lot of that has to do with somebody has to be outside of the box looking in, and say, "This is what this is what you guys need to do from the outside looking in. This is this is how this band needs to. These are the optics that that need to be present. There was nobody doing that. One of the reasons, well, I mean, look, 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 let's compare it to Ozzy. Ozzy's solo album was or his solo career was thriving at this point yeah. because he had a manager that was committed yeah. to doing that. Black Sabbath didn't have yeah. any management. They bounced around. Well, at one point they had Don Art. Then they were Sandy Perlman. Yeah. Now they were back with Patrick Meehan Jr. Jr. Yeah, Patrick okay. Meehan Jr. Patrick, right. His father was there too. And now they're <laughs> back in this. I mean, it's just dumb. I mean, they ripped them yeah. off. And he's ripping them off again as it ended up. <laughs> he ripped them off again. But they didn't have the proper management. I mean, when you say, well, 
you know, this is the last album on, on their contract and, you know, everybody just kind of wanted to move on. Well, I get that. But then again, it's like the label still did put money into this recording and why not hype it up? Why not, you know, put a full page ad in, in some of the major magazines? Why not, you know, get into a, you know, a media blitz about it and what, what the hell, you know, maybe it was because they didn't want to put that much money into it, but I mean, you've already got money invested in this. So you might as well takes money to make money, but there wasn't, they were, they were probably just as burnt out on this album. It took way, way longer. Put it out, you know? Yeah. Like, I, well, I agree. Like maybe if their manager had, they, they, like you said, if they had good management, maybe they would have said, look, guy, let's just, let's just give them a live album or a Population yeah. and let's kick back let's regroup let's take let's, some time yeah, yeah let's, let's take time to figure this out yeah, but it seemed like one of those situations like they were too far into it to back out there was too much money invested in it to back out and it just kept i don't think anybody was thinking at it from the perspective of how are we going to sell this i think the main emphasis was like how are we going to record this how are we just going to get this done how are we just going to get it done and, and get it and get it out and you know they 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 did manage to do that but you know, that's, that's only, <laughs> it's only half the battle i mean you got to sell them too i mean you got to let people know that it's out there right now you knew because it, the columbia records it was columbia record tape yeah. club was you know i mean they obviously put something in their uh, circular or whatever but i didn't know and i was reading all the rock magazines even some of the the ones that uh weren't as popular a rock scene or something like that or whatever i mean cream just completely ignored it um I don't, I, for the life of me i can't remember hip prayer having anything to do with it um circus didn't kerrang did but you know black side was by and large as a uk band so i mean but even that was like if you really weren't aware of what was going on if you really didn't read the article you you weren't sure that it was this article was to promote the band having a new album so um yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things I think that the whole thing sounds a little bit tentative. But in spite of that, there's some some really good stuff here on this record. Yeah. And they just didn't even properly tour for it. I'm looking yeah. at tour dates for it right now. And from what I see, they didn't even tour the U.S. for this album. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't toured properly. It just wasn't supported all the way around. But all right, well let's uh let's let's jump into the album then. So the album opens with The Shining and uh I love this song. This is a favorite from the album. Uh can remember as soon as I put it in and heard it, I felt like, yeah, okay, this is what I was missing on uh, Seven Star. I love that picked guitar intro. That main riff is is really cool and powerful. Uh the way Tony Martin, the way the verse, everything kind of drops down. It's bass and drums playing and Tony Martin's, you know, wailing over the top of it felt like a classic Dio type of a move. I love that section in the song where everything sort of breaks down and the guitar is playing that descending pattern. And Tony, Tony Martin sings that uh, bells will take their toll. That That is just a fantastic, which interesting little side note, they complain about the pronunciation of ray gillen and then if you listen to that tony martin it, it the line is bells will t will take their toll 
And he, it sounds like he sings bells will take their tool. <laughs> Every time I yeah. hear that, he has, I yeah. can't unhear that, but I love that section of the song. I love that guitar part, the way it breaks, the song breaks down. Uh, I, I only solo in this, I think is great. There's that little like riff that he sort of played da, 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 before the, before the, uh, the lead kicks in, uh, just a great song. I think it's a fantastic uh, album opener. One of my favorites on here. I think Martin, it's, hey, I never knew the story that Martin came in uh, eight days with eight days to record these vocals. I think he owns it. Yeah, and uh, he great. sounds powerful and convincing on this. Like he's like he wrote these songs, you know, so mm-hmm. real credit to him that, uh, you know, he just comes up yeah. and uh just just owns this but uh this is a real strong opener and it felt i distinctly remember hearing this and feeling like okay being nervous putting the tape in after the seven star experience and being like i love the album cover put it in heard this i was like yes this is what i want to hear from black sabbath these types of riffs this type of vibe of it um the riff is yeah it's a great song um the riff is really cool it's uh you, you know it's tony iomi playing it it's um, it's 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 a great t- Tony Iommi riff. I like the way that Tony Martin sings it. Um, it's it's sort of a power metal kind of a song, which is a little bit unusual for Black Sabbath up to this point. But with with the riff and and everything and the song structure itself, it it works. It's um, it sounds good. Um, when you talk about Tony Martin coming in with, you know, a lot of um authority with this i mean i I, this is one of the the songs that i think ray sang better now you said you know well it was just a demo but you can hear the way that 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 ray sang it and i think ray was actually the one ray gillen was actually the one who was responsible for the lyrics and the lyrics are about the movie the shining he thought (laughs) it's kind of Mm -hmm. kind of silly but he thought the movie was so cool they wanted to write (laughs) a song about it well you know and i was i was kind of hoping that they weren't about the movie. I was kind of hoping they were about <laughs> something else that was uh, called The Shining. But nope, they are about the movie, the Stanley Kubrick movie starring Jack Nicholson, written by uh, the, uh, the novel by Stephen King. Nevertheless, uh, it's, it's a, good, it's a great, great song. It's a great way to kick off the album. It's a good album opener. And uh, yeah, I mean, at this point, now we're off and running. All right, next is Ancient Warrior. Uh, this is another one that I love. I love the riff in this. It's got a little bit of an exotic uh, mm-hmm. Richie Blackmore, Snake Charmer kind of uh, scale to it, but uh, the scale that he uses on the, uh, but it's slow, it's heavy. Uh, I like the lyrics. Uh, again, this is the darker tone, Black Sabbath, uh, that I would do me. Black Sabbath that I was that I missed on the Seven Star. Uh, I think the lyrics, I think the lyrics are cool on it. Uh, good song. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I this this definitely gives me a, a rainbow feel. Yeah, um, somewhere in between Dio and uh, Dio era rainbow and and a Graham Bonnet, although technically tony's voice is probably closer to joe and turner but as far as they like the eras it, it reminds me of rainbow circa 78 79 um and that's that's not a bad place for uh for tony iomi to be 
at this point in time, considering where he's been coming from for the last, I don't know, couple albums, um, it works. It, it's a traditional British sounding uh, heavy metal hard rock song, yeah. and I like it. It works well with the uh, Black Sabbath vibe, and it, you know the riff sounds cool. It's a little different, but um, I like it. And the part in the song that he is the king of all kings, the keeper of light, he holds eternity's wings. My blood will spill my blade. I, mm. Martin just uh, I like that wails like, on that. I also like when Iomi gets that that slow churning vibe yeah. that that it's so powerful. And I'm yeah, glad there's some cool cool keyboards in in this too. You know, like there's a lot of nice little atmospheric kind of keyboard touches through through a lot of these songs but uh yeah this uh, this is heavy the way he in the verses when he drops down and he's chugging on his low string but then he sort of plays that riff you know in between the the vocal lines it's it's cool mm-hmm. all right uh next is hard life to love uh we mentioned rainbow this this main riff sounds like uh it's always made me think of like a Richie Blackmore uh, type of type of riff. And uh, I, I guess it's good. It's probably not my favorite on the, on this album. Uh, the subject matter is a little, uh, you know, these lyrics are a little throwaway for me living in the fast, yeah, living yeah. in the fast lane is easy till you run out of road. Yeah. Friends will turn to strangers when you're out of control. You know, it's just, I don't know. Uh, 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 though I do like the chorus in it. I do like the part, the uh, I'm simply refusing a part in your world. And I see, I see how it burns. But it it's a little bit after the weightiness and the intensity of the first two tracks. This one kind of feels a little... Uh, you know, a little little throwaway. I might have dropped this a little lower in the uh, in the uh, set list here in the track order, but but it's not a bad song. It's just after the first. I don't like it as much as the first two songs. It's a little lighter. It's a little happy. You know, the riff is sort of bouncy. Yeah. Um, it's not something that is really very germane to to Black Sabbath. So we're kind of introducing something a little bit new. But maybe it's maybe it's sort of somewhat of a holdover from. Uh, the vibe of uh, Seventh Star. So I'm getting kind of a Seventh Star vibe from this song. I like the riff. It's just, like I said, it's not really germane to to Black Sabbath um, from previous albums. Lyrics don't bother me. Um, they're not great. They're not awful. I mean, there's certainly nothing, they're, they're no worse than anything that Ian Gillen was, was writing. Um, and they seem to be coming from a place where somebody had some experience with the subject matter in this song. And it was probably Ray Gillen. Um, yeah. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't sound to me like this is something that was from the pen of Bob Davis. <laughs> yeah. They just feel kind of throwaway. Yeah. And a little I mean, there's just nothing, like, a little generic. And there's California. Just really... Not not so yeah. much Birmingham, more California here <laughs> yeah. on this one. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's okay. All right. Well, next, uh, things get back on track for me here with Glory Ride. And speaking of lyrics, I, I love the lyrics in this one. I think these mm-hmm. are great, yeah. great uh, lyrics. And, and the song uh, 
fits the the mood of the lyrics that main riff from Miami is very triumphant and mm -hmm. majestic and you can sort of uh, picture the airplanes yep, in the sky and some of the imagery here winged with steel they mm -hmm. fill the air the soldiers of fortune will ride you know it, it, this feels like bob daisley yeah. lyrics you know yeah. dressed to kill where eagles dare the fate of a nation's at hand in this, the answer to the prayers come the dawn through the blood, red skies return with tears. You know, I love it. Uh, this, the Iomi's main riff in this is uh, he's, I mean, Iomi is the king of of the riff, but uh, this style riffing, these, these real, uh, uh, these real majestic, real dynamic uh, they're almost uplifting even though they're they're heavy and they're kind of dark they have this this real uh jumping out at you uh sort of quality and uh, it just works really well here here i like the lyrics i it fits really well with the riffing in the song it almost feels like you know maybe they had these riffs and then bob daisley comes in and it makes him think of this subject matter so he writes the the lyrics around it i love uh i think martin tony martin sounds great on it so yeah this is a real strong one for me i love this song um it's one of my favorites if not my favorite on this album i love 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 the riff i think it's awesome i love the riff um i i, I dig the lyrics too i think you're probably right i think uh the music probably inspired Bob Daisley to, to, to pen these lyrics. Um, I even like what Eric Singer's doing. I love that simple, like when the riff's going, he just like boom, boom on the accent of the riff. I yeah, love yeah. It. Especially when it comes back in the second time. It's really cool. And of course, he does a little triplet. Um, yeah, it's a great, great song. It, it it's, gets the blood pumping. Um, love the riff. It's heroic. Gives me... <laughs> gives me the chills i mean you, you you turn this song up and that tone that you know you you've got and so far i mean i will say that maybe it's not quite as thick as in previous albums but there is that iomi tone he does, yeah. the tone is on point and it really works with this song this is one of the songs that i will say goes back reminds me of something that could have been from maybe mob rules it kind of has a voodoo that that sort of a, of a riff or yeah. country girl yeah kind of a vibe and i really 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 appreciate that and that's what i need you know, on this album and i'm glad it it happens on the first side because now i'm now i'm in i'm like yeah okay cool yeah this is one that i could could picture that that main riff there being used uh during during the Dio era and I, I do agree Eric Singer's uh drumming especially in that spot where you mentioned is is pretty cool just to go back for a second talk about the snare drum that that just I try not to focus in on the snare drum because once you do it's hard to sort of ignore it but uh uh I think it's in uh, Ancient Warrior where he does this like like thing and it's so like yeah. undynamic it's so it, one level it sounds like a drum machine because it's not it's really so... I don't, it, there's another thing where he does a triplet and i know eric eric singer can play a triplet like nobody triplet like nobody's business but it's because of the way that it's gated that it takes it 
it flattens it out. You, you don't have, there's no ghost notes. And, and any, of, any of the drone tracks on this album, there are absolutely no ghost notes. It sounds like it is just yeah, sampled. Exactly, exactly. You know? Yeah, it sounds like it's the just right. Reminds me of the snare drum sound on a Death's Leprosy album. That's yeah. like another like yeah. just obnoxiously not quite gated. that bad. But yeah, yeah, not that bad. That's a legendarily bad, you know, snare drum sound. But Okay, uh, next, Born to Lose. Uh, this kind of sits in the same place for me as Hard Life to Love. Yeah. It's 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 a little forgettable. Uh, the chorus in it, I don't particularly like the chorus that much. You, you think I'm chasing shadows in the dark. Well, I'm not born to lose. Uh, again, okay song. It's just a little forgettable. And it suffers the same fate as hard life to love, which follow two really strong songs, two really heavy songs. Mm -hmm. Same thing here with glory ride. Glory ride is, is a great song. And then born to lose just seems kind of, kind of forgettable. And that that's something that will kind of plague. I mean, everybody has your favorite songs from, any any given black sabbath album but it's but it's really hard to and, and even though we may go back to heaven and hell and say something like walk away is maybe not not our favorite on that my favorite on that album it's still not quite like born to lose or yeah. hard life to love these just feel kind of forgettable and there's nothing on heaven and hell or even born again or uh certainly during the Aussie era as I think again, there, does, yeah. there's nothing just as there's nothing like these where they just seem like there's just nothing happening here it's just sort of forgettable I think that even with Dio being an American when he when he joined Sabbath he kind of had an Anglo attitude toward the material and toward what would be his role in Black Sabbath so I think that even the songs that, that you can kind of tell I I I would say that he's probably mostly responsible for wishing well and uh, walk away, um, which are the two songs that kind of sound a little bit. Uh, oh yeah, feel. Much so yeah, and you but can connect they're, them they're back still, to Rainbow. They don't sound. They don't sound. Yeah, you can connect them back to Rainbow. They don't sound as L.A. This this yeah. is the song that kind of has an L.A. sound, and and so does um, Hard Life to Love. Uh, sounds sounds, yeah, kind of. LA sounds American, very American, which is something that I don't think Black Sabbath was really able ever able to really embrace that that American no, kind of it never served them well. Yeah. No. And uh, but in spite of that, it's okay. I, I don't hate it. Like I said, when we started, I there isn't a song on this album that I, I don't like. I, I like all the songs. Uh some hit harder than others. And this is one that doesn't hit quite as hard as a couple of the other ones on here but um i won't skip over it i'll listen to it um starting off side two it had to be right. on the album i guess that's a good place for it yeah you know all right well next it moves into nightmare and this starts with that i always imagine a uh what do you call those like jewelry boxes did you open up and there's the little dancer spinning around in this a music box like that kind of uh, sound at the beginning here then then it kicks into that almost funky 
type of riff and drum beat. It reminds me of Thrill of It All from Sabotage, the way that has that kind of bounce. Yeah, bounce to it, a little bit of a funky feel to it. uh, And the way uh, Tony Martin is sort of singing, there's spaces inside the riff that he's uh, singing off of and he's kind of showing off his range, you know, silent scream out filled with fear. It's almost, you know, bluesy. There's There's a bluesy. Uh, feel to it Um, yeah I like this one and it does it for me because of the the feel of it and again it feels like something that I could picture Bill Ward you know really doing something with with this song or again you know being something you could have maybe heard even during the Ozzy era I think it definitely could be something you might have heard in the Ozzy era it has a looseness it you said thrill of it all it's not as raw sounding you know, like like I, I I said earlier that the overall album has kind of a sheen and it has kind of a homogenized sound to it, and so there's not a lot of it, it's kind of it's kind of antiseptic. This riff, a little raunchier, a little dirtier, definitely could have been something that I could hear on Sabotage. So this is this is one of the songs on this album, probably the only one that I can riff wise anyway could hear from the Aussie era. Um, also interesting that when I guess the band got back together with the original lineup, they were playing a song live that was called Scary Dreams. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of had the same vibe. And it was like it yeah. just, that song sounded like something that in, in pretty much their traditional way that Iomi would sometimes write songs or or, or put his riffs together like during during the live show during the live set scary yeah. dreams came about as a part of the live set in and around that time they put a title to it ozzy sang some lyrics maybe geezer went so far as to write lyrics i don't know it never it was never re- properly recorded but it was performed live kind of has the same it's almost like they they took nightmare and reinvented it for ozzy yeah <laughs> instead of calling it nightmare they call it scary. Yeah. what's a nightmare what's a scary yeah scary dream, well, yeah. scary dream. <laughs> or let's let's, let's yeah. you know and of course ozzy puts his own melody to it but the, the two are, are pretty similar actually uh but i like it and uh i don't know if you you came across this little tidbit this little factoid in your research but this was written for the uh nightmare on elm street yeah three yeah interesting it, it it, though yeah yeah which is a horrible it. movie by the way so <laughs> interesting yeah but uh, anyway yeah nightmare i like it Good okay song. next is the short instrumental scarlet pimpernel uh you know sabbath this is something that sabbath does these instrumental things uh I, so for me it's it's hard to you know put too much behind this because it's just a short little interlude type of thing. But but I like these kind of things and it makes me made it feel more like a Black Sabbath album because you know Born Again had all those little instrumental sound effect types breaks. Mobrils had E five one five zero. Of course, all the guitar stuff that Iommi did during the Ozzy era, Fluff, Orchid, Embryo stuff like that. So this sort of sits in in that space for me and it's kind of creepy it's kind of weird sounding you know it has has a sort of a horror movie speaking of horror movies stuff like that this is something that i could picture this in a scene in some some horror movie it's got a really 
medieval vibe to it too, you know, uh, the, the instrumentation or whatever that they're using in the way that they recorded it. It kind of has a scary uh, boarded up uh, old haunted house uh, feel to it. So it serves its purpose. I always like these, these types of things on black Sabbath records. It puts you in the mood and uh, it does a good job of that, of, you know, giving off that scary black Sabbath vibe that, that I love so much. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's fine. It's an instrumental, um, kind of a traditional black Sabbath thing to do, you know, we've had orchid and, uh, you know, what else did we have? We had, uh, Fluff, Laguna Sunrise, uh, Don't Start Too Late. Uh, so in, in the tradition of that, I mean, we have Scarlet Pimpernel, which is kind of a classy little title for it, the Scarlet Pimpernel. You just look at the title and you know that it's probably an instrumental because <laughs> yeah, anybody right. getting behind that was a lyrical concept, but, uh, I'm glad they didn't actually. Uh, my suspicions were confirmed upon hearing it that Scarlet Pimpernel was an instrumental. <laughs> and it's cool. Yeah, it's it's uh, a little different from some of the other instrumentals. It seems like it's a, a little bit more dramatic. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it does kind of set the stage for Lost Forever. And I think it's probably where it, it sequenced was uh, that was probably the intention. And so Lost Forever. Um, next is lost forever and uh this sort of sits in the same zone as uh born to lose and a hard life to love although i might like this one a little bit better than than those it's a little stock it's a little forgettable mm -hmm. for me again stock, yeah. yeah it's just a, you you described it earlier it does have sort of a even the way it starts like it almost just playing this this guitar thing right and it's 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 just uh maybe in the hands of the original band or if ronnie was here and vinnie apice was here they they could have twisted this around and and done something with it but kind of as it stands it's just a little bit it's a little forgettable it does sound like something that you could hear from some some other random metal band from generic. this uh, yeah it's very generic yeah, and uh generic. which is disappointing because like we mentioned earlier black sabbath even they had a especially during the Aussie era they had a way of experimenting and doing different things and maybe not everything works as well as some other things, but they would, they were still able to be different. And, and this just, just sounds very generic. Like you said, it sounds very stock and uh, you expect more from, from black Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think overall with a few exceptions, the album was probably intended to assimilate, with a lot of the other things that were happening um at that time in 1987 and things would of course as we know now would, would change pretty profoundly in the next couple of years but at this point there really was sort of like this 
more or less stagnant pool of arena rock kind of stuff that, you know, White Snake and Dokken and a lot of the LA bands and their influence was pretty much what, what set the um, set the standard for hard rock and heavy metal at this point. And I think there's at least half the album here kind of assimilates to that. Having said that, though, I mean, it is Tony Iommi doing it, so I appreciate the fact that we do have uh, the Iommi tone. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, like you said, in the hands of someone else and in the hands of maybe these riffs, some of these riffs like A Hard Life to Love, Born to Lose, Lost Forever, in the hands of a different lineup um, might have taken a different course or, or may have ended up on the cutting room floor or left. In yeah, the yeah. But if they were to be put into into song, then they, it would have had a different vibe. Um, it, it's, it's strange because, well, it is and it isn't. It, it, it's strange because we have uh, uh, an English singer and Tony Martin singing these songs. You would think that they wouldn't have such an American kind of vibe, but then you also have yeah. to mind that he's using the Ray Gillen template. And so that's where we are. But um, even the title just doesn't, when, when you're looking at an album, and, yeah, it's just lost forever. It doesn't, it, even when I looked at this and went, a Scarlet Pimpernel, that sounds interesting. You sure. know, the Shining, that's an ancient warrior. That these, you know, these sound interesting. But when you get Hard Life to Love and, uh, you know, Born to Lose and, lost think, forever they're just so like like you said you could just picture them on some generic la bands record i think if you're if you're on the fence and you're looking at this album even now for somebody who may not have heard it or somebody who's not familiar with the tony martin era and you're kind of inspecting things and you're looking at it and you're looking at the logo which sort of seems like eh, you know it's not very exciting this block the cover Eh, not really exciting. I mean, you said you like statues and things like that, and, and it excites you, but it didn't. It didn't really do much for me. And, and like I said, like I started, the very first thing I said was I thought it was a compilation. It didn't look like this was something that was intended to entice the consumer. It looked like it was something that a record label just kind of somebody in the graphics department of the record label put together the same as they were any one of those other black sabbath compilations you know you have a lot of them i'm sure i have at least yeah one of them. yeah you're right yeah. there's a I different type of black sabbath logo and yeah yeah you know, so I mean, when you first look at it it's like the eternal idol you know if you're thinking that the, the 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 title of the album the eternal idol oh because the music is eternal because the music is timeless you know that's what kind of tipped me off and it just didn't look like this was something that I didn't think that the band would really, or whoever was responsible for marketing this thing would, would approach this, this package, this, this album cover concept is something that looked like it was a new studio album. I mean, cause you even, you, you can look at the previous album covers. I mean, there's a more, a lot more thought put behind it, but I guess there was some thought put behind it in the sense that, they wanted this Rodan statue and they, they were refused, which that, that's kind of a kick in the, kick in the, <laughs> in the groin too. It's like, you just want to use this statue and take, and all we want to do is take a picture and put it on our album cover. No, you are, <laughs> you guys are losers. It's just Nobody likes you anymore. Yeah. 
It's just um, the way things were rolling. And so they move ahead and they had to like simulate the statue. And, and, and then the, the people, you, know, you mentioned this in your intro, the people got sick from the toxicity of the paint, like <laughs> ill-fated album cover. And at the end of it all, it's not even that great. So, but <laughs> moving along, when you look at the album or we look at the song titles, it's like they don't, I'm a, I'm a big sucker for cool, creative song titles. That's going to get me interested. That's going to pique my curiosity. If I have a song title that raises uh, curiosity, I'm like, well, I, I can't wait to listen to that song. And, and generally, if, if the song title is creative, then the lyrics will be creative too. There's not a lot to be expected from some of these song titles. Hard Life to Love. That sounds like, you know, well, that's probably like a generic bluesy song. Glory Ride, probably a power metal song. Um, and so, so somebody who's trying to decide whether or not they want to get into the tony martin era looking at this album they they may just decide to put it put it aside um which is unfortunate because there are you know like like we just went through song by song there's a lot of great things about this album but is there a lot of depth to it in comparison to other albums no there really isn't there really isn't a lot of depth lyrically uh the riffs are cool Lyrically, there's not so much. There doesn't really even seem to be a commitment in the way of there being uh, a designated band where, you know, it's all for one, one for all. It's mostly like, you know, cast of characters trying to put put this thing together to fulfill a requirement. Um, and all right. Whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, the album ends on the title track, The Eternal Idol. And uh, I love this song. Next to The Shining. Uh, eternal idol i should say not the eternal idol the title of the album is the eternal idol this song is just eternal idol and uh i love this song it's it's dark it's heavy uh we haven't had anything like this since you know maybe on the born again record or going back to uh going back to when ronnie was in the band this is just dark it's evil sounding those uh There's like a keyboard effect or something in the when the vocals are going down. It's kind of like this bubbling and like this shh, shh, like noises sort of zapping in and out. It just makes it sound really ominous and creepy. And the way uh, Martin sings it, those verses, and there's like uh, I love when there's uh, there's a harmony uh, voice that comes in. Child of tomorrow will die. You know, it, it, there's other voices in there too. And just the way it drops down and gets real quiet. And then the main riff kicks in the intro to the song, the way it's kind of quiet. Uh, Omi's guitar isn't like turned up all the way quite yet. He's playing that, uh, that, uh, evil sounding riff and, oh man, it's just when, when he kicks in and, Tony Martin wails way up high in his range and that descending like kind of reminds me of a dazed and confused to type riff uh, comes in and it's just so heavy and uh, I love it. Yeah. I, I, I love and Sabbath does this a lot. They've got good album closers and this one is a great one and it just sets everything out on a real dark heavy uh vibe which which is just fantastic this is a favorite of mine from the record it's a favorite of mine from the uh from the tony martin era uh in general i just think it's a great 
great tune. And this is exactly what I wasn't getting on the seven star. There's nothing this heavy on maybe the, the title track tries to be heavy on the seven star, but there's nothing as heavy as this. There's nothing that has this, this dark, scary, uh, mood to it. Uh, love it. Great way to close out the album. What makes it dark and scary is that it, it's basically a rewrite of the song black Sabbath. It has that dynamic, that quiet, loud, yeah. Yeah, it, it, and it can, gets kind of mellow, and then it comes yeah. back up, and, and and Tony Martin sort of sings it in the same manner that Ozzy kind of sang Black Sabbath. So it's sort of like a reinvention of the song Black Sabbath. And I like it for what it is. Um, I won't say that it's it's anything that's earth-shattering. It's, it's, not, um, it's not the one that I would consider one of the best from the tony martin era but it is cool um and i agree with pretty much about 50 percent of what you said about it i'm just not that excited about it it is a good album closer i agree that it's cool that they we haven't heard this element in a long time probably since born again the creepy unsettling like mm -hmm. dark vibe that that is a part a big part of black sabbath um for this i and here's another song where I it, it exposes the um, inadequacy of the production. I wish for this song the production was a little bit thicker, bigger, warmer guitar tone. Just really fill this one up with with more atmosphere. It's a little light. Um, sometimes the production works on songs like you know, "Hard Life to Love." Uh, I think Lori Ride sounds good with this production quality, uh, Lost Forever, Born to Lose. But for this one, I think it would have been a lot more effective with a different production quality. Really give it that dark, heavy. I mean, I, I could almost say that it would probably benefit from a born again treatment with that murky quality that just, you know, just makes it yeah. thick. It, um, it, it works for me. It works for me because, it, it, you know, a complaint somebody might have with this record is, is that it's like kind of has that 80s too much reverb, which makes the guitar sound a little far away. But that works on this song for me. Like when he kicks in on that descending riff, it, it sounds like it's being recorded in a reverby cathedral or something you know yeah. everything sounds a little yeah. bit far away and there's a little bit of that you mentioned the song black sabbath there's a little bit of that with the drums too where he's just kind of hitting toms and stuff like that in the verses and it's kind of very reverby and everything is kind of distant and far away uh but the part at this and i want to mention this one part at the end of the song where he goes into the greed money taking over their souls you're just mechanical brains politicians don't know just don't know i always thought that that could have been you know as the song's fading out he sings that line that sounds like a real dio type of thing dio was great at that as the song's fading out he throws in just a couple lines that are rhythmically different have a little bit of a different flow to it i could just really hear and the way he keeps repeating that, that line they just don't know i think it's great and i think the production actually serves this song well the sort of echoey uh reverbed out uh sound does actually work on this particular and the keyboards really do it for me there's the keyboards these keyboard sounds and effects that are sort of uh 
flying in and out uh, in the verses and stuff. And towards the end of the song, the way Martin's voice gets pulled back, it gets really like they turn the reverb up even more. And he's sort of fading out in the distance. And the way the song goes out is uh, I love it. It's great. And it really felt like, okay, this is not sure if plaques uh, that think about this. I'm not sure if they ever really do anything like this again after this point uh for me that has again that black sabbath scary creepy ominous uh vibe you know i think it's a couple songs on tier that that hone in on that vibe too sabbath stones um having a black yeah we'll see well we'll see when we get there when we get to tier and all (laughs) well okay um yeah i mean that's cool i mean different strokes for different folks yeah. And I can see, I can totally understand how, and I do know people that don't like the production on this record. So I can, I, I totally get it, but all right. Well, uh, any final thoughts on, on the eternal idol? The, uh... I think we've covered just about everything. I think we went into more depth on certain things than I thought we were going to. Um, it's a pretty good assessment of where we, where we are. Um, I thought I was going to be initially, I thought I was going to be a little more enthusiastic about But What I like to do before we do these is I like to at least 24 hours before we start talking about these. I like to, to listen to the album again, reassess where I am. And surprisingly, I, if you'd have asked me earlier in the week, well, or at another point, 72 hours ago, I would have said I was going to go into this much more enthusiastically, but my most recent listen to this i i really listened uh closely and uh and critically and and this is sort of my assessment of it and it wasn't quite as positive as i i thought it was going to be but i like i said i i do like the album but i i'm just being pretty critical of it because i think that this is an important album this is where tony martin comes into black sabbath and um and, and in some ways you know i feel like I have to defend him because overall, and, and we know from some of our Sabbath Sundays on your Lair the Alchemist channel that we can uh, we can talk about things yeah. we don't like about the Tony Martin era, and some people are going to come to his defense. Yeah. But when we would talk about things we like about the Tony Martin era, people would just come in and clobber us. Yeah, yeah. There's like it, so it's much. very divisive. And, it's, yeah. yeah, it is. And, and I don't know. It's like, you know, it's one of these things where people think that because you don't like something, that they have to defend it. And then it's like, um, it's okay for someone not to like something that you like, you know? And there is this whole era of the band and some people aren't content some people like black sabbath enough where hey man as long as tony i always playing guitar i'm in i'm gonna hang with it i'm gonna listen to it i'm gonna find something about it that i like and i'm gonna try to enjoy it and that's not enough for some people they have to get on a campaign and, and try to like burst your bubble and tell you all the different reasons why you shouldn't like it like hey man yeah i'm gonna like it regardless of what you say you like you don't like it so just go over there and don't like it and let me chill out over here and like it you know i think for those people for the people who don't like it it goes back to what i was talking about earlier 
it's the name Black Sabbath, and they just can't get past how different this sounds. And for the people who do like it, that feel like they always need to come to its defense, I think part of that is that this era of the band never really, it, it almost feels like they, 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 uh, they weren't really given a chance. And it's, it's so written off by the band. It's, it, it's so ignored by the band. These these albums have been out of print forever. As we make this podcast, yeah. there's talk that the Tony Martin box set is supposed to be coming out. That we've been hearing this for years. It's like this era of the band that gets forgotten about. It gets ignored, and people feel like, man, if this if this stuff had been given the proper it's proper due. It isn't like, for instance, you know, there's people that only like the Bon Scott era of ACDC, but nobody can say the Brian era, Brian Johnson era of ACDC didn't get its fair shot. It sure as heck did back in black. One of the biggest selling records of all time. That's my favorite ACDC record. Yeah, back exactly. And there's, and there's people that, yeah, that did love the Brian Johnson era, but you can't really, you know, with the Tony Martin era, there's just this underlying thing that I think a lot of people feel. And I, I feel it myself too. This is nagging feeling like, man, it just never got the shot that it deserved. Never got that title bout well, that, it, that it deserved. You know, they land up on IRS. They don't yeah. get the, they yeah. sort of get ignored. By this time, metal is changing. And yeah, there's always... just sort of nagging feeling like, man, this, this, this era of the band just deserved a... It deserved better. And and so, some of that, or we could say a, a chunk of that is Sabbath's fault. Like as we go through yeah. these records here, just when they start getting rolling with a somewhat stable creative lineup, what does Tony Iommi do? He, they go back with Dio and they put out Dehumanizer, thus breaking any kind of momentum that the band had. You know, there's a tons of bad uh, business decisions. Bad we decision. talked about some of them, some of them here, but uh, I think that that's for some people what yeah, with this era of the band, the issue that they have that it's just like, man, this just, this just hasn't gotten the shake that it, that it deserves. Yeah. But. They should make a compilation of some of the more uh, deeper tracks from the, the less popular eras and call it bad decisions. <laughs> uh, but, but this is, I think that overall, this is this Tony Martin era, I think was a missed opportunity. I think that it should have been handled I think that it should have been approached in much the same way that that the Dio era was introduced. I mean, they had the odds stacked against them. They had Ozzy for eight albums, and you know they were going to change singers, and but they just did it. They just went for it, and and they owned it, and it was successful. And and people had, I mean, they just basically said, "This is it. You know, you're going to like it, or." or not, but we have a feeling you're going to like it. And it was great. There was a lot of confidence in it. And I think this, for, for a few reasons, doesn't really have quite the same confidence. I don't and think the, the band was really, or you could say Iomi, or at, at this point, the, the band is basically Tony Iomi and Jeff Nichols. I don't know that they really had the confidence. I don't know that they really had the commitment, the soul behind it. I think at this point, it was a business. It was their career. You got to keep yeah. the rolling. They got to keep it, keep things moving along because this is what how they make their livelihood. This is what they got to do. I don't know that there was quite a, as much of a creative conviction behind the concept of Black Sabbath to really take the bull by the horns and really, you know, introduce this as a, the third 
important era of the band. Yeah, and they never, even within the band, it always felt like Tony Martin never got the respect that he deserved, even inside the band. He's a little polite. Yeah, yeah. they, they They leave for... Ronnie, you know, reunion with Ronnie, they leave. Uh, You hear Tony Martin talk about the Forbidden album and how, like, he didn't know what was going on. Like, okay, Tony had one foot out the door towards the Ozzy reunion. The Ozzy's name keeps popping up during during these eras. It it isn't like the band stood back. You know, Tony, I only could have said when when Geezer said, hey, I've been jamming with with Ronnie, talking to Ronnie. Let's let's get that era of the band. He said, no way. I've got, I'm, I'm totally behind my guys here. I totally believe in Tony Martin and cozy pal and the band that I've got going on right now. I'm not jeopardizing this. It just made it, it just sort of cheapened it. And it, and it even felt like, you know, again, all this like kind of rumors constantly about getting back together with Ozzy and, and leaving to get back together with Dio and that falling apart and just never even getting behind martin and and saying like hey this is our guy i believe in this you know this is it this is the new black sabbath yeah. the tony martin era of the band and and yeah. i'm behind this guy 100 percent and we're gonna we're, we're gonna go for this but no it always yeah. tony martin talks about that how there was always this sort of cloud of like where was he just gonna was tony iomi gonna just bail on it do you and, think though that maybe some of that might have been Tony Martin's fault. Do you think that maybe he didn't command the spe- the, the amount of respect that he felt he should have? Yeah, gotten? maybe. And I mean, we talked it about here. Have, you know, they may not have they pulled that when and Dio refused to be treated like that when when they wanted to yeah. open up for Ozzy. Dio's like, I'm not doing it, and they thought he was kidding. And he's like, No, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> and that's and, it. And he didn't. And part of that might have been that Tony Martin was somebody that did didn't come from Ronnie came out of rainbow. And by the time dehumanizer rolls around, Ronnie was at a stadium playing solo, you know, Dio, the Dio band. And, but Martin never had that. And then he comes in an eternal idol. He's singing somebody else's lyrics, somebody else's melody lines, headless cross comes around and we'll talk about this when we get to headless cross, but like the lyrics in it, he felt like he never really knew how to handle Black Sabbath, how to handle his place in Black Sabbath. So some of the lyrics on Headless Cross kind of feel like he's playing to the crowd a little bit with the bats and goblins, as much as I like that kind of stuff. You know, he 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 never kind of felt like he had his own sort of thing going on. Ronnie had his own thing that he had, that medieval uh you know rainbows and castles and dragons that's that's ronnie's thing ian gillen has his thing glenn hughes has his thing and and maybe it's just because choni martin didn't have another band to be in for many many years to find his thing he comes into black sabbath and he's sort of behind the eight ball a little bit right away here with the eternal idol and he never really has a chance to kind of find his own footing in the band i don't even know if maybe it isn't really till gosh till cross purposes maybe that feels like the most tony martin-ish personality album you know tears this mythology thing headless cross is a little too much with the bats and the and the devils and stuff like that so yeah it is uh, yeah maybe some of that is is tony martin he walks into this big behemoth he's younger 
than Nichols and Iomi. So I think you told me this or somebody told me this about Tony Martin, a quote from Tony Martin, where he was, it's my friend Matthias sent this quote to me. And Tony Martin was saying like, you know, these guys would, in their free time, they'd go hang out with Richie Blackmore and Ian Gillen and Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton. And cause they grew up with these guys. That's yeah. where they came from. And Brian he was May. like, I, that wasn't Brian May. And he's like, that wasn't my generation. You know, I was younger than them. So this, I, I didn't feel like, you know, I couldn't, yeah. he, he wasn't in that generation. Whereas these guys felt comfortable around Ian Gillen and Glenn Hughes and stuff because they were the same age and they came up through the same system, if you will, and the, the, the well, same always, group of people. There's always going to be a place. There's always going to be a way that you can think of how you're not exactly the same. And that was kind of a, a wedge that that was put between, um, Ronnie and, and Vinny and, and uh, Tony and, and Geezer, you know, we had the English guys and we're the American guys. We don't, we, we have a yeah. different personality. We have a different way that we react to things. You know, we, we are, are, we're wired differently. You know, we don't understand each other to be able to be on the, in the same creative wavelength. I mean, we made it work, but there, it has its limitations. So there's always going to be a reason why things don't, completely gel and and very rarely if ever will everybody be on the same page at all times or maybe there is something significant about their differences but in the context of black sabbath it's not hard to figure out what it is that gives black sabbath the personality that it had up to that up to this point a little bit of gothic a little bit of you know let's say hammer horror you yeah. know, roll with that, man. It's going to work. Um, if, even if you have to bring in some of that medieval type stuff, it's, you know, it's broad enough where you can, even though that might've been Dio's thing, it's a broad enough subject matter where you can kind of go in and figure out your own twist on it, you know? And then certainly the horror aspect um, is something that you could figure out your own little creative uh, investment. You make your own little creative investment in that vibe. And, and I think he, I think he tried to. I, I just don't think that it was consistent. I don't, it, it only, and the fact that it wasn't consistent from album to album kind of made it seem like it wasn't very sincere, as I'm sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I think about it though, I think that Tony Martin, he comes across as just a, a really nice guy and a really easygoing. Uh, you know what they say about nice guys. Yeah. Well, exactly. And you think it's about Dio. Laugh. <laughs> Dio was, you know, we all love Ronnie James Dio, but nice he, he seemed like he could be, yeah, he could be a little pushy and a little yeah. opinionated and stuff like You're that. You're going to push him around. Right. Tony Martin doesn't seem like that. He seems like a guy that that's just more like kind of goes with the situation. He's, he's easy to get along with. He's, he's, he's not going to call, he doesn't want to cause a lot of waves and stuff yeah. like that. And, uh, you know, I guess that's, that that's a strength to, to, to what he does too, but maybe in a situation like this with a band that had been around is, and it's easy to understand how someone could be intimidated by that. And, you know, sure. Black Sabbath at this point is quite a history behind them. And, and here's this, this, you know, here's a guy walking into his first big band uh, you know, the connection, we didn't mention this earlier. Uh, Tony Martin's manager knew, Tony Iommi, so that's how the, this all worked out. Uh, 
They liked big, him. They liked yeah, book. band with a big band with a big history with a big catalog and everything. And um, maybe maybe it wouldn't have worked with some real strong personality no. uh, type of singer like a David Coverdale or a I, Robert Plant or somebody that that had their own backstory. So in a lot of ways. Maybe Martin, you know, he he was he was the right guy at the at the right time uh, I don't, for Black Sabbath. I don't think it would have worked with a David Coverdale or somebody that had uh, a tenure in another popular band because it yeah. always that's always confusing. You know, it's like when John Bush joined Anthrax. It's like, wait a minute, now this is like, is it Armored Saint or is it Anthrax? You know, there's two. John Bush had had his personality was his. his style was was too much a part of armored saint um in this context we have a david coverdale where you you know the former lead singer from deep purple did you know at least one the album burn is a very popular it's it's a one of the more well-known deep purple albums to the follow maybe not so much but he had a tenure in deep purple then he goes and he, he does white snake for a number of years he doesn't need to join black sabbath they don't need david coverdale to join black sabbath yeah, yeah. david coverdale is quite fine over there what what they did need i think is somebody that had a little bit more moxie um and I, I, I still maintain that I think Jorn Landy would, would have been a great choice. I think that yeah. in some ways he's a bit of a Dio clone, but and then other ways he's a bit of a Coverdale clone. But when you see, when I saw him on stage, and I I suspected that he would be a great singer for Sabbath. When I saw him on stage, the Dio tribute with the band, I'm like, man, this would be killer. Yeah. If they were smart, they would take this opportunity, put this guy in their band, go start writing a, an album and, and, and get, get back into business again, but they didn't. And it was really disappointing. Um, he was all into it. I mean, you know, even under the, the circumstances, which were not the greatest um, with that tribute to tribute concert. I mean, he was, he was stalking the stage. He had the mannerisms. He, he owned it. And there was a confidence that he exuded that was one that I hadn't really seen with, with Tony Martin. And I, I saw them live with Tony Martin twice and uh i, I enjoyed it I, I still maintain we we talked recently and i i said that he's he can handle talent wise undeniable uh charisma not not quite as much um i enjoyed tony martin live um but he was very polite he's like this is a song that the band did when blah 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 blah, blah. Yeah, you yeah, are in yeah. the band man you're in the band don't don't yeah. don't you know you are black you're the singer for black Sabbath. you're on stage you're the man, you know, and I never, even in that, those two situations, I didn't feel like he was, he was part of the band. And, uh, and I guess it's, you know, he probably didn't either. And that's unfortunate. Because he had the All talent. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, he had talent for sure. All right. Well, uh... I think to give a shout out to Greg Vickers. Greg Vickers always uh, listens to the podcast. He, uh, yeah, sends Facebook. us a lot of good yeah, cool, uh, messages I enjoy, and stuff. I enjoy hearing from from Greg, and I'm really uh, appreciative of the fact that uh, we have uh, some people that that like to listen to the podcast and and listen closely and, and want to talk to us about it. Appreciate it. So shout out to Greg Vickers. Yeah, and uh, for everybody out there, we have a Facebook page, our Into the Void of Black Sabbath podcast Facebook page. You can reach us 
through there. We love talking Black Sabbath. And if you uh, can't get enough of me and Darren talking Black Sabbath, uh, head on over to my YouTube channel, Layer of the Alchemist. We do a feature almost every Sunday that we call Sabbath Sunday, where we uh, talk all things related to, to Black Sabbath, where we expand on some of the things that uh, we talk about here with the uh, with the podcast. If you'd like to support the uh, podcast beyond that, you can go to Kofi, ko-fi.com slash into the void, a Black Sabbath podcast. You can make a donation there. We've had some uh, really generous donations from Tom, Tom D, Matt H, uh, other people. We really appreciate all that. We appreciate everybody's support out there and uh, we'll see you uh, with the next podcast where we are going to be back with Ozzy and we are going to be doing his No Rest for the Wicked album. So thanks again to everybody out there and we will see you at the next podcast.